But uh, you have a set of notes today because we have a lot of stuff we won't probably be able to get to to look at. Uh, stuff I'm going to sometimes go through rather quickly, but I want you to have access to mainly the scripture references that you can look at on your own that will give you great insight into the difficult topic we're going to address today, which is angels and demons. We're going to try to take on both within the limited period of time and try to get a handle on what is probably a relatively difficult subject to get a handle on. We first are looking at the big picture of an unseen world exist. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Correct, Ricardo. So, there's a lot of things we simply have to accept, though we have not seen them. Or though the main time of the activity was a long time ago. We do that with the identity of Jesus being the Son of God. We do that with the uh, historical identity of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, David, individuals that lived long before us who did great things as servants of God. We accept by faith that they are real people, that they really lived, and that Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, and raised three days later. And I think for the overwhelming most part, we have a handle that we believe that is true based on the evidence that the Bible is a historical book. But there are some things within the Bible that are quite a challenge. And probably the supernatural is the most challenging for me. I'm not comfortable with what I cannot see. I like seeing things. I like factual evidence. I don't have a whole lot of use for science fiction, though I did love Star Trek growing up. I thought that was an amazing show. But science fiction's never been things I like reality programs, at least, I mean, the things that historical documentaries type reality shows. I like things that are real. So I have a hard time with things that I can't quite see or nail down better. And probably the supernatural is one of those. But Paul says in Ephesians 6, verse 12, for our struggle... It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the Apostle Paul, through the Spirit of God, is telling me, John, even though you like to look at just the things around you, there are things going on that make your world a lot bigger, and a lot of it is unseen. A lot of it is not flesh and blood. It's not people. But these supernatural beings that exist not only on earth, but also dwell in the heavens. And scripture is replete with references to them. And one area that gets a lot of attention is angels and demons. In fact, the words angel and demons together were a title of a movie not too long ago, uh, probably about 10 years ago with Tom Hanks, based on Catholic church concepts of angels and demons and conspiracy theories and, and things like that. But if you read your Bible, you will encounter references, multiple references to angels, multiple references to demons, far more than you will the Lord's Supper or singing in worship, uh, things like that. You will encounter references to angels and demons. If you tell someone, hey, you just need to go read your Bible, uh, better tell them to buckle up because when they read their Bible, they're going to read about some things in the Gospels concerning demon possession that are quite scary. And they're going to have some questions next time they see you. Or they might read about angels. And they've seen TV shows about angels among us and, and things like that. Or even seen TV shows or movies. There's one of angels in the outfield. They might even be in the outfield uh, playing baseball, things like that. There's a show, I think, with Michael Landon a few years ago on TV where he was kind of like an angelic being helping people. And uh, there have been other numerous shows like that. Well, what is the biblical truth about it? We need to kind of understand, even though there's a lot of things we won't understand. 
So this morning we're going to try to understand spiritual beings that are in our world. What do angels and demons do? Um, where are they? Uh, how would I recognize them? Uh, maybe more importantly, how would they influence me if I did encounter them? Uh, how should we respond to them uh, if encountering them? Uh, how do they hurt or how do they help us? Um, I know for sure that angels were far more comfortable with, demons were not so comfortable with. Um, just so you can look at on your own at some scriptures, uh, here's some, I think the most helpful, there's a lot, but these are the most helpful on angels, uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2, Hebrews 1, 14, angels work on our behalf and God, for God's purposes, angels are curious beings, 1 Peter 1, 12, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1, or 2, 4, they have free will. They have the choose to, uh, choice to follow God or not. The angels are active with children. They're also active at our death. Uh, in Matthew 4, Luke 22, they assisted Jesus in critical moments in his life. Uh, they have a powerful role as laid out in Hebrews 1, 14 through chapter 2, verse 9. Uh, Hebrews 13, 2, they are active among us, and you might even have been visited by one. Hebrews 13, 2, we'll get to that later on. Uh, concerning demons... Just the opposite. They work for Satan. Uh, they can, though they may not now, possess people. Uh, we'll look at Luke 8 today. In fact, you can turn to Luke 8. We'll be there in just a moment to spend time there. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 20, along with others, gives us an idea about why God allowed demons to possess people or act on the earth. Uh, we find in Matthew 24, I'm sorry, Matthew 4:24 and 8:16 that demons are more than just someone that has mental illness. They're not a manifestation of mental illness or anything else. They're not a manifestation of epilepsy like some people used to think. Uh, demon possession is a very unique thing. Uh, demon possession is very real and powerful. We find in Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20. Uh, they can be eliminated or, as the Bible says, cast out. We see that in Acts 19, 13 through 20. And even non-believers recognize that, yes, they were just eliminated from this person's life. Uh, Paul in 1 Timothy 4 verse 12 associates uh, false teaching about marriage and things like that as a doctrine of demons. So apparently demons have their own theology or their understanding of God's work. But James 2 says even the demons also believe. Uh, they have the right knowledge, and we'll see that today, but they don't act upon it and they actually serve on Satan's behalf. But they have free will just as angels do and just as we do. So these are just some scriptures written down that you have there that if you look at them on your own, you'll find them fascinating as far as the information they give you and the help in building your knowledge upon what we'll look at today. Well, let's first look at demons. I want to end on angels. I don't want to end my sermon on demons today. That's not a, a positive way to end. But let's just start out with demons. Uh, trying to understand what they are or who they are and what in the world are they trying to do. In studying this, if you could nail it down to one thought as you encounter any teaching about demons in the Bible, and it's primarily in the New Testament, you're going to learn that demons are supernatural beings committed to evil. Supernatural beings committed to evil, but evil on different levels. Sometimes they're trying to teach people something wrong. Other times they're simply trying to hurt people. Uh, they work on behalf of Satan, trying to embarrass God. And there's one scene that I want to look at that probably is the most representative of demon possession. And that is Luke chapter 8. Go ahead and turn to Luke 8. 
This account is in Matthew chapter 8, also in Luke chapter 5. So three of the four New Testament gospel writers give attention and at length to this scene. I've chosen Luke's account to kind of give us a handle on the essentials about uh, demons, at least how they operated in the first century at the time of Jesus. We'll start with verse 22 of Luke chapter 8. It records one miracle of Jesus, I think, that sets the stage for understanding the next scene, which is Jesus casting out demons from this one man. Let's start Luke 8:22. It says, One day Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall uh, came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped. And they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Let's just pause here, hear this great miracle of Jesus calming the storm. But notice what the disciples concluded. Even the winds and the waters, they obey him. That is, Jesus has complete control of the physical universe. Which, by the way, gives us a lot of insight into how fearful we ought to be about things regarding the climate. There is one who's in total control, and that is the one, the Son of God and his Father. And that power is exercised here. And it's for a purpose, not of trying to do some magic show, but to show who is supremely in control of the world and here in control of the physical nature of the world. Now notice the transition to verse 26, another area of control. It says, They sailed to the region of Gesenares, uh, which is across from the Lake Galilee. And Jesus stepped ashore, and while, I'm sorry, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torture me or don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Verse 30, Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them into the abyss. Verse 32, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, 
And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. Then those tending the pigs saw what had happened. And they ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Then they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. That all the people of the region of the Gerasenes had asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. Verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. This is where we'll stop. First of all, notice that this is a pretty extended teaching. This is not two or three verses. This is longer than the Lord's Prayer, longer than most recorded teaching, at least in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it also is recorded, except other details are emphasized in Matthew chapter 8, also in Mark chapter 5. But what can we learn simply from this scene? First of all, that's consistent with other biblical teaching. First of all, the demons exist on the earth. They might have came from the heavenly realms, not from heaven where God exists, but they might have came from the heavenly realms above our atmosphere. But they have come down to earth, or at least have come down at certain periods of time. They were among the people, and they went into people. Uh, sometimes a person was possessed by one demon, but here it says... Uh, when Jesus asked him to identify himself, he says his name is Legion because many demons had gone into him. So here multiple demonic beings could uh, go into a person. And we find many scenes of demon possession in the New Testament. There are 26 references to demon possession in the gospel accounts and in Acts. That's pretty extensive. That's again, when you tell someone to study their Bible, they're going to run into this. And uh, you might want to be ready to help them if they want to understand, is this what my aunt is having a problem with? Or is this going to happen today? Or could I be a victim of this? Those are very real questions if someone's reading their Bible. Uh, secondly, I think we can learn from this and other teaching is that demon possession was recognized as real. Regardless of how Hollywood presents it or the Catholic Church teaches it, you can know for sure that demon possession was very real in the New Testament period. Uh, not only was it recognized as real by Jesus, by his followers, but also by people that had no real belief in Jesus at all. The townspeople knew this man was demon possessed. They did not interpret his condition any different than someone that had a demon. It seemed almost to be the norm as you encounter uh, teaching about demon possession. No one ever questioned Hey, this demon possession is nothing. It was something different than anything else they ever saw. So it was considered as very real and treated as real by all people on all sides of the spectrum. Uh, demon possession was very powerful at times. Uh, when a person was possessed by a demon, it appears that they could not control their physical body at all, and the demon actually did. This person that says they tried to chain him, uh, verse 29, uh, they, when it says the demon had seized him, 
implying the person couldn't resist. The person was chained. Uh, they chained him hand and foot under guard. But he had broken his chains and been driven out by, by the demon into solitary places. So not only did the demon overpower any restraints, the demon actually could take the person physically to another place and he lived among the tombs or in these solitary uh, places. Uh, nothing in scripture indicates if a person lived a bad life, they deserved getting a demon or something like that. People appear to be victims of demon possession. And demons just entered people and did what they wanted at times and everyone recognized it as so. And very powerful. This is probably one of the more extreme sides, but notice even his uh, presence was described here. It says he went without clothes at times. Uh, he never lived in a house. He lived among the tombs. This is why Hollywood likes demon possession. They love this stuff because on Halloween and other times and scaring teenagers, they can run with this. The movie The Exorcist in the 1970s, they love this stuff because it can, it's scary. But for someone like me that likes everything all neat and tied down, it, this is a little discomforting that this could have even happened then, let alone is it possible to happen now. But notice here something that emerges from this scene that even someone that's never read the Bible before will notice. Whatever power demons possessed or may possess now, it's limited and controlled by whom? Who controlled the demons here? Jesus. And they were fearful of him before he did anything to them. Um, let's look at that because I think that's what is standing out. Remember, Jesus controls the physical environment. He controls the climate. We see that in verse uh, 25. Notice what the demon says um, when he saw Jesus. Verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Here the demon immediately cowers in fear, and this is consistent in the New Testament. When demons encounter Jesus, they don't try taking him on. They cower in fear. In fact, it appears that they've been studying. Uh, they knew more than others did who Jesus was. You are the son of the most high God. I beg you don't torture me. The demons knew who to bow down to, who to cower to, who had power over them. And that was God. And here the son of God. Verse 29, for Jesus commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Jesus asked him what his name. And the person sits up straight. Legion, uh, uh, and then uh, the demons begged Jesus not to send them to the abyss, which appears to be some otherworldly, below-the-earth type place that's alluded to in other places. They didn't want to go there, but they were content going where? Into the pigs. But the, the minute they got in the pigs, the pigs took off the ocean and, or the sea and they drowned. Again, this scene gets more and more unusual as you read. But if you're trying to figure out why this and why the pigs and why the pigs didn't go the other way, just focus on this that in every instance, Jesus had complete control over these demonic beings and what they did. And once the demons were cast out, what was the state of the person? It says the townspeople, um, when they'd come to see Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting where? At Jesus' feet. Think about who else is described as sitting at Jesus' feet in the New Testament. Remember her sister got all mad at her? for sitting at Jesus' feet? Mary. So here, this is a scene of ultimate reverence and respect. This is, the man's gone from dark to light. 
by Jesus' power. Not because he studied a 12-week course on how to get rid of demons and be a better person. It was only by the power of Jesus these demons went out. And they became completely normal and even completely reverent, that person, once the demon had been cast out. And that is consistent. There's no demon possession rehab program. Uh, once a person had the demon cast out, they went not only to normal, but to very respectful of God. So he's sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed in his right mind, but the people were afraid. Those here, demon-possessed man is ready to become a disciple. He wants to follow Jesus. But the non-believers here don't even want Jesus around because he's upset their world. They were actually quite comfortable with the demon-possessed man, as long as he wasn't in their front yard. He was out in the tomb. So this is interesting as well. The demon-possessed man is now further advanced than they are. He's wanting to follow Jesus. Jesus has to tell him, hey, just return home and tell how much God has done for you. So number one, demons exist. Uh, they're recognized as real, powerful at times, but they have very limited power when it comes to the Son of God and the power of God upon them. They recognize the power of God and they run from it. They'd rather go anywhere than being under the control of God, even to be drowned in the pigs. Uh, this is very representative. Well, what about today? This is what we just saw, representative of what we saw or see 2,000 years ago. Clearly, demons possessed people at times. Cannot argue it, cannot doubt it. But what about today? The one benefit of all these accounts of demon possession is they give a lot of details about what demon possession looked like. And some people think today, well, maybe it was just epilepsy and they didn't understand it. Or maybe it was mental illness, like we see maybe on the streets of the city, people walking around shouting and yelling. And maybe this is what people were really encountering. I want to look at a couple things um, to look at the aspect of how this was more uh, than simply uh, mental illness or it was more than epilepsy. Whenever at times there's passages that talk about Jesus casting out demons, many times in the list, and it's in your references, it also mentions that he, he healed the sick, he healed people that had seizures and things like that, where demon possession is isolated from any type of mental illness. It's also isolated from any type of physical illness, illness, which indicates it could not have been just epileptic seizures that he didn't recognize as such because they weren't medically advanced, nor was it mental illness. It's always distinguished. The non-believing people recognized someone when they had a demon, <laughs> when they had demon possession. So did Jesus, and so did the disciples. It's sometimes uh, Jesus' disciples they would heal the sick. Other times they would try to cast out demons. There's always a delineation. But because of all passages like that, we this we see very clearly what demon possession is. But our view is clouded by Hollywood, and that movie, The Exorcist is usually what people think of. They think of a young girl levitating on her bed and all the other gross things you saw in that movie. And there's been a string of movies like that. And most people are familiar with that. And Hollywood's like capturing how the Catholic Church presents demon possession. And that's how people see it. The first problem with the demon possession today is you don't see the demon possession you see in the New Testament time. 
You see mental illness. You see people with problems with seizures. You see people that struggle with their thoughts mightily. But you don't see demon possession as represented in the New Testament. There's also passages in scriptures that indicate that eventually demon possession would end at some point. Look at Luke chapter 10. Just go forward a little bit. Luke chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. Here in verse 17, 72 of Jesus' disciples returned back, and part of what they'd been doing is bringing demons under the control of the power of God. Notice what Jesus says in response. Luke 10, verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. Verse 18, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all of the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Here in Luke 10, 17 to 18, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He's introducing this idea that Satan's power that's been so prevalent is now being rescinded. And you don't see a lot of demon possession in the Old Testament. Uh, for a time, Saul had an evil spirit, but you do not see this. It is as if God allows Satan to have a degree of power just like he did with Job. It's as if God allows Satan to have a degree of power, and then Jesus shows his power over Satan in this very visible way. Jesus' power over nature calms the wind and the sea, has power over Satan himself and demon possession. But that exertion of power on the part of Satan and demons was only for a period of time to show God's power. And therefore Jesus says, I've, I saw Satan fall like lightning and to overcome all the power of the enemy. One more, uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 20. Luke 11, verse 20. Jesus says as he's answering his enemies, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus here is associating his ability to drive out demons with the kingdom of God, that is the rule of God, coming into the lives of people. And there was a lot of miraculous activity associated with the time of Jesus and the time of the apostles. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, eventually this miraculous activity is going to go away. That God's power is going to be understood, ascertained. The written word would come along that would be the confirming evidence of God and His power. Implying that this period of demon possession would only be for a limited time. You see it somewhat in the book of Acts, but it continues to curtail in that you find few references beyond the book of Acts to demons. You find the doctrine of demons as if they're now teaching in 1 Timothy chapter 4, but you find demons believing in, in James chapter 2. My understanding is that simply demon possession, at least as presented in the New Testament, does not exist today. The reason for God allowing it doesn't exist. The actual features of it, as you read about it, we don't see unless someone tries to see it. My point is this, you don't have to worry about being a victim of demon possession. Don't think that what you saw in The Exorcist, if you saw that movie, or any other movie about demons,
could happen to you or your children or your grandchildren. Our biggest challenge today is with our inner demons. This phrase, inner demons, I heard quite a few years ago, but it seemed to describe someone who had a challenge with addictions. And they had a lapse or they fell back into addictive behaviors, drugs or alcohol dependency. A lot of times it was used, uh, the phrase was used, oh, that person has a lot of inner demons. It was a way of describing something that almost was overpowering to them. And as you talk with people that have addictions, it is a daily battle to fight the power of alcohol or drugs or chemicals. Uh, people have gambling addictions. I was listening to Dave Ramsey show the other night and a person called in. Gambling addiction, everything else in their life was going great, but they were addicted to gambling and sports betting online. And, but the person was otherwise quite normal. But they struggled in this area. And this is the area where God wants us to give emphasis now. In fact, no one has ever even warned in the Bible, beware of demons possessing you. No one's ever warned about that. You were just a victim of it during a certain period of time, and that was the New Testament time. But we are warned repeatedly about giving ourselves over to desires. Look how Peter addresses this in three places just briefly. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at His coming. Verse 14, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as He who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Here Peter says, not conform to your evil desires. You could kind of use the phrase, do not conform to your inner demons. And here, when someone talks about inner demons, or even if we use that ourselves, we're not talking about some kind of demon possession that's out of our control that you see in the New Testament time. But instead, you could talk about something that is your attraction, where Satan knows that's your weakness, and he brings it to your front door every day. He brings it on your electronic devices. He brings it through friends. He brings it through places you go or conversations you have. He knows what you like to give into. And Peter here says, don't give into that. Do not conform to those evil desires. Here's some examples. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter writes, 1 Peter 2, 1, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice. That's doing vindictive, hurtful things to other people. All deceit, that's lying. Hypocrisy, that's being two-faced. Envy, that's being jealous or desirous of what other people have and having a bad attitude about what they have. And slander of every kind, that's talking bad about other people. Instead, he says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you might grow up in your salvation. So part of getting rid of our inner demons goes beyond someone that has addictions chemical, alcohol, lust, whatever it may be. But if you have a problem with lying, um, acting one way at church and one way on Friday night, uh, envy, that is being jealous of what your family has or your friends have, talking bad about other people, whether it be over a cup of coffee or on the street or at work, slander. He said, get rid of that. Those are our inner demons. 
Sometimes people never touch alcohol all their lives, but they sure touch talking bad about other people. Oh, let me tell you about this. Paul says, you work on that. What, what's going on here? Peter also says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which what? War against your soul. These are our battles. Don't worry about demon possession that you see in the New Testament times. What you see portrayed by Hollywood. Worry about your own inner struggles where you know your weaknesses and so does Satan. And he works on those with you every day to destroy you by them. That's where God wants you to give attention. So this is, in a short summary, teaching on demons. I'm going to go a little faster through angels. Let's switch gears. Because I don't want to end on this note. I said, well, just end, and we'll be happy with that. No, no, no. I think, uh, <laughs> I know you wouldn't say that. I want to end this way. What are angels then? Angels are supernatural beings committed to good. They're just the opposite of demons. They're like demons in that they exist on earth. They come from the heavenly realms, but they've come to earth. They've come by God's command. They have their own free will, but they act on God's behalf and follow his instructions. They are very prominent in power. They can act powerfully whenever you see them. They act powerfully. Acts 12. They unchain Peter from prison, allow him to get out and show, show up at the church while they're praying for him. Um, they can act miraculously at God's request. Angels can. Just like Demons, they are recognized as real. Every person that saw an angel in the Bible recognized them as real. And they were usually very scared of them at first. Not that angels were frightening beings, but they were powerful in their might and their appearance. People usually reacted with fear and trembling, it says. Uh, demons, or I'm sorry, angels were not like little fat babies running around like cherubs. Don't ever think of anything like that. Don't think of some meek and mild character like you saw in it's a wonderful life. <laughs> uh, you know that classic old black movie that angels were terrifying beings as far as just the magnitude of what people saw when they saw them. But they usually brought instant peace and comfort to the people that saw them. Let's just look at a quick example. Luke chapter 1. Probably the best place to get a good handle on angels is Luke chapter 1 and 2. Because they appear three times. One time they appear to... Zacharias and Elizabeth to announce the birth of John the Baptist. Second, an angel will appear to Mary, the angel Gabriel, both instances, appeared to uh, both Elizabeth, Zacharias, and then Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. And then angels and a host of heavenly beings, it says, appeared in Luke chapter 2, to the shepherds to announce the birth of Christ. And a lot of detail is given. Let's just capture a little bit of it. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Luke writes this about his gospel account. He says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the certainty of the things you've been taught. Just pause here. 
Luke's here making a point to say that he's writing credible historical eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus so that people might know the certainty of what they've heard about. And the first thing Luke will talk about is angelic beings. So the understanding of angels is not some fanciful thought of, of myth and legend, but the teaching about angels is historical truth being recorded by Luke. Let's begin reading, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all that the Lord commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. And they were both well advanced in years. Verse 8, Luke 1. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Verse 11 now. Here comes the angel. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. Verse 12. When Zechariah saw him, he was what? Startled and gripped with fear. Just pause here. Notice when he saw an angel, he didn't say, Oh, let me hug, hug you. You're so cute. It was like, Whoa. It was like they could not believe what was in their sight. And that is consistent throughout the New Testament. Angels were powerful beings. And they were, it says he was gripped with fear. But verse 13, look what the angel does. But the angel said to him, Do not be what? Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. That's a good name. My mother probably was reading this at uh, my birth. But uh, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. Many of the people of Israel will, he will bring back to the Lord their God. Skip down to verse 18. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand where? In the presence of God. And have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this what? Good news. This captures in a representative way the work of angels. They are personable, but yet mighty appearance. They come to bring comfort to the people they appear to or help. And here the angel Gabriel has a first name. They're personal. I stand in the presence of God. So they work on God's behalf where the angels, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, demons work on Satan's behalf. And he says, I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. So they do what God tells them to do. They accomplish God's purposes. And we see the angel Gabriel doing the same thing with Mary in chapter 2 and then angels appearing to the shepherds in chapter 2. Those are more familiar texts that we'll probably look at closer to uh, the holidays in December. But you've already read those accounts and are familiar with them. 
In conclusion, or as we end, again, notice angels are mighty in appearance. Whenever they appear, it gets people's attention. So don't ever think angels are something that belongs in a Hallmark card or some diminutive being or some hapless character like in It's a Wonderful Life. Angels are powerful beings, however they work on God's behalf. And to respect and be revered. Michael the archangel, Revelation 12, is described as taking on the followers of Satan in the heavenly realms. Mighty warriors at times were angels. But at times they may alter their appearance. They may not even be recognized. Look over in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2. This is kind of like a hidden verse. Hidden because it's not easily noticed. But if you're trying to figure out if angels work today, would you recognize them? I don't know, because they can change their appearance. When they appeared to people in the New Testament, they were recognized almost immediately, if not immediately. But notice what Paul writes in Hebrews 13, verse 1 and 2. Paul writes, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Verse 2, do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing for, or for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to whom? Angels. Without knowing it. Now this just broadens our understanding of angels. Don't think that every time they appear, they have to appear in some dazzling, powerful appearance. They may change their appearance and be a stranger to you. In need of assistance in some way. It's not everyone that's a stranger is an angel. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say not everyone that asks for money is an angel, but he tells you and tells me, do not forget to show hospitality, that means love of strangers, to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. So that should help us be on our toes in our life. Don't quickly dismiss someone as a bother. <laughs> Don't dismiss someone as not worthy of your attention. If you're in a position to genuinely help someone in a meaningful way beyond just making yourself feel good, that person could be an angelic being that has changed their appearance and appeared to you. And this is where I think Hollywood kind of has got things right, sometimes. And sometimes the show that Michael Landon and other shows, they've shown people that were angelic beings but they appeared in human form trying to help people out. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that over The Exorcist, where they could appear as other human beings and you actually have a chance to be helped or to help them. That's an amazing consideration. Angels assist God's people. In the first chapter of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 7, the entire chapter is devoted to teaching about angels, but the writer of Hebrews says this in 1.14, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Let me just read that again. Are not all angels ministering, that means serving, spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. That is probably the best singular verse to understand what angels are. They're ministering spirits. They come to serve or to help. They're spirits, though. They're heavenly beings. They're not flesh and blood human beings like we are. They're sent to serve. Every time they appear, they're serving God in some capacity. And here it says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Who is that? That's you and me. 
And that is an amazing thought about angels as we conclude this lesson. That not only has God sent His own Son to die for us, He sent His Holy Spirit to live within us, He sent His Word to guide us, He allows us to pray to Him, His providence works in our life to guide and direct, even in ways we don't know. God is even... He's even marshaled spiritual beings to help us throughout our life. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Here spiritual beings are in your life at this time. We just don't even see them. We're not told to try to figure out, hey, was that a spirit that opened my door for me? Uh, we're not told to go around trying to find them. But we are told to appreciate that they exist, they're real, and they're helping us in ways we may not seem, and to not easily dismiss somebody that we might be meeting for the first time, for they could be an angelic being. That, that is amazing to consider, but that's what we're told about angels. Two other tidbits and we're done. Interesting text, Matthew 18, verse 10. Jesus alludes to how that children may have their own angels. There's a lot of difficulties with that. It's only one reference. And for parents have had painful things happen to their children, it's even more difficult for them. It appears that angels in some way work in the lives of children. And as Jesus taught about not hurting or offending these little ones, he talks about their angels in heaven who look down upon them. That's a powerful consideration for how angels may work in the world. But there's just not anything more than that given concerning their work. Another reference um, <clears throat> in Luke, uh, the teaching about the rich man and Lazarus, when it talks about the rich or Lazarus dying, it says angels carried him up to Abraham's bosom or a place of rest or tranquility for him. It says that Angels carried Lazarus, that means carried his spirit. And that very well may, uh, very, mal, very well may be, I'm sorry, what happens with us when we die? That our soul is carried lovingly up to the Father in heaven. Our body lies in ruin in the grave or crematorium, but our spirit is carried by angels up to God. What a beautiful scene if that's true of all of us. So as awful and horrible as demons are, as presented, just the opposite is real as well. That is angelic beings. But there's been no time limit. There's no verse that says angels stop doing certain things. Angels are at work in this world just in ways we don't see. But know for sure that God has provided them for your well-being. You're never alone. The presence of God is always with you, and even angelic beings. Though you may live alone, you are never alone. And the people you encounter may very well be angels at times. What a blessed life we live to know that God works in this way on our behalf. As we conclude this morning, just understand that these are the blessings of being in Christ. Having put your faith and your trust in His Son, in numerous spiritual blessings... Paul says, we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ, and angels are one of them. Respect and appreciate them, and be aware of them.
but also look out for your own demons. Don't worry about demon possession. Satan will work well through a lying tongue or a deceitful heart or an envious person. He doesn't need a demon. Just let a person be consumed with bad things and that's all they need. Be aware of the spiritual struggle. We're going to sing a song in just a moment to encourage us to be strong, to be strong in the Lord. We wage this battle in our own life in a war that's being won by Jesus Christ. As Paul said in Romans, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. We'll prevail to ultimate victory through Him. And that's what these scenes are showing us.